You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, community radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds. Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with sound. Higher and higher, filling it with sound. Filling it with sound. They sound quite mad, don't they? I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. I am the narrator. Voice that guides the blind, following up with your ears, with your mind, and allow me to take you back and forth through time to explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't further down the line. The theme of today's show is connection on this day after Thanksgiving Day. In the first hour, we're going to hear an interview I did with Michael Gelb two days ago. Michael Gelb is well known as a speaker and workshop leader where he teaches the art of creativity, creative thinking, and how to generate creative energy. And he's the author of many, many books, including How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, Creativity on Demand, and most recently, The Art of Connection, which we'll be talking about today. I really, really enjoyed reading this new book of yours. Oh, thanks. It reminded me so much, and it encapsulated so much of what I've learned throughout my life. And you just put it all together. And, there was, and of course, there's, there's more on top of that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and sounds like we've traveled down some similar roads experientially. Not necessarily in our work, but in our experience. Uh-huh. Uh, Cool. And I also got to read part of Creativity on Demand, which I've had for a few years, but I just, even though I really wanted to read it, I've gotten distracted from it. So a lot of wonderful stuff to talk about. And you're most well known for teaching creative thinking and about the use of creative energy and, and cultivating creative energy 
for those who are unfamiliar with your work, could you briefly encapsulate the message of your last book, Creativity on Demand? Sure. Well, Creativity on Demand was an expression of the confluence of two of my interests, creativity and life energy, prana, he also known as chi. So I've been studying qigong, tai chi, yoga, and aikido, as well as the Alexander technique for many, many, many years. And I've also been helping people develop their creative thinking, creative problem solving for many years. And I was in Costa Rica doing a Qigong retreat with my friend, Master Robert Peng, practicing six hours a day in class. And then, because I just can't get enough of a good thing, <laughs> I, went to, I went to the beach and I practiced another couple hours on my own after class, and I was on the beach. You know, Costa Rica is one of the most beautiful places in the world. And then the only thing to make it even more beautiful is doing these exquisite ancient practices that have been passed through this phenomenal lineage of which Robert Peng is a most brilliant manifestation. And I just had this aha, epiphany kind of experience that for many people, the missing link in their attempt to manifest creativity was the energy. So there it was, creative energy. It's unlimited. It's free. It's easy to access. And it occurred to me, what if I asked the greatest Qigong masters I know what practice that they've studied would be most helpful in cultivating creative energy particularly. So I just, I, I went around, I, I didn't, and I didn't just interview them, I did intensive retreats with all sorts of great people like Ken Cohen and took the best of what I learned from them all and put it in creativity on demand. So how do they go together? I think a, a lot of people would not imagine that the two would work together because creative thinking, we think of that as an intellectual thing and energy is a more visceral thing. Logically, it makes a lot of sense to combine them, but I think it's wonderful yeah. that, that you were inspired to put them together. Thank you. Well, that was the thing is that you're right. For a lot of people, they're good at creative thinking, but Nothing ever happens because they don't tap the visceral energy it requires to manifest a creative idea. And it requires an amazing amount of energy. So what if you could cultivate and focus that energy and link it, literally connect the thinking and the kinesthetic visceral self and the heart so that there's an ethical component as well. So clarify, refine your insight, your wisdom, your 
vitality and your compassion and bring them all together around your highest purpose. And that's what I just shared is just that's the schema for one of the practices in creativity on demand called the three treasures standing meditation, which is an ancient practice, which couldn't be much better for developing one's ability to generate and express creativity. And to live, to be alive in this world. And to live. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So just when when my approach to, to creativity, even though I love the arts and I'm married to a brilliant opera singer and I love the work of Leonardo da Vinci, obviously, and other great painters and all kinds of, of arts. When I talk about creativity, it's not necessarily in the domain of the arts. It's not limited to the, what we call the arts. It is the art of living. It's, it's being creative about your life. It's being creative about your work. It's being creative about relationships uh, so that creativity is just essential, especially now in the world so complex confusing it's not a luxury item and it's not just for so-called artists it's for everybody mm-hmm. yeah um the people who who refer to the universe itself as a grand evolving creative act amen <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> buckminster fuller said i seem to be a verb i would take it to everything seems to be a verb yeah so getting back to the creative thinking you you said it's really easy to teach people to generate new ideas the hard part is getting support for them and overcoming resistance to those new ideas so i'm wondering if that has anything to do with why you wrote this new book on the art of connection that has everything to do with why I wrote book. It's precisely that. It's that having creativity on demand was preceded by a book called Innovate Like Edison, which I co-authored with Sarah Miller Caldecott, who was Thomas Edison's great-great-great-grandniece. And we brought forth Edison's strategies for innovation. And before that, I wrote a book called Discover Your Genius, where I went through 10 of history's greatest, most revolutionary minds and looked at what we could learn from them. And before that, How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, Seven Steps to Genius Every Day, where I got to immerse myself in the thinking of the genius who was my hero when I was growing up and remains my all-time number one favorite subject uh, that I've written about. But you're right. So, okay, here's a whole team of genius role models from Leonardo to Einstein and Plato and Copernicus and Queen Elizabeth I to Thomas Edison. So here's all these strategies that they recommended. I mean, I just read what they wrote and what they taught their students and tried to abstract it and make it relevant to us today about how to generate ideas, how to think creatively, how to innovate. And in addition to writing these books, I actually, over the years, work with 
all kinds of organizations on developing a more creative culture. And I help people think of ideas, business development ideas for their business, strategies for expanding their business, ways of restructuring their business so that people can apply that creativity in a more of a team collaborative approach. And in working with real businesses and other organizations, the challenge, the biggest challenge is just as, as you articulated, it is the relationships. It's getting people to collaborate effectively when there are very different styles and agendas. So you have people in the sales and the marketing department, and they focus on saying everything that a product can do. But you have people in the engineering and tech department who have to actually make the product that can do the things that sales and marketing says it can do. <laughs> and sales and marketing, by their nature, have a tendency to glorify some of what it can do, and engineers have a tendency to be a little more conservative because they have to actually do it. <laughs> so you can see an obvious relationship problem between the engineering department and the marketing and sales department. Then you get the finance department. Well, they have to pay for everything and don't even talk about the legal department. That's the toughest group to, <laughs> to get on board. But <laughs> <laughs> Not to mention that most people are afraid of change. Well, this is the thing. And the thing is, you know, then you're just in constant fear now because it's all happening so fast that you can't get away from it. So, and that's why it's why I mean, people do have a need for help. They want support. And I'm doing, you know, in, in the realms that I can offer it, I, that's why I'm writing these books and doing these seminars to, to try to help the best I can. I'm, I'm really curious how you found yourself or decided to work with organizations and you know, business executives. Personally, for me, I would have run the, the opposite direction. I, I work with people one-on-one. -on -one. What was, what was yeah. it, what, what's going on inside of you that, that led you in that direction? It was complete happenstance. It was synchronicity. I was on a path where I mostly would have been working with artists, with performers. I, I trained as a teacher of the Alexander Technique, and I wrote my master's thesis at Goddard, in that Goddard program in Europe. And uh, my thesis got published as my first book. And a fellow who was leading seminars for senior executives around the world, was studying the Alexander Technique. He read my thesis at the time. It wasn't even published as a book. And he said, oh, I never understood this before. You, you took this and made this so clear. He said, I'm, I'm facilitating a retreat for senior executives of a global computer company in Switzerland. Why don't you come along? So I came along, and I talked the Alexander Technique. I taught them how to juggle. Uh, I taught them the inner game of tennis. I helped teach mind mapping and speed reading and memory development. 
And the head of HR for the whole company happened to be on this retreat, and he said, let's have this young American guy on all our programs around the world. So I was 26, 27 years old, and I was flying all over the world, leading seminars for people who were twice my age, and now I fly all over the world, and I lead seminars for people who are half my age. <laughs> but what I realized, the funny thing is, that was the first synchronicity, but the reason I stayed in the realm of working with businesses is I felt that this is where the real influence and power for change in society would be. That if we could get companies to be more humanistic, more environmentally aware, more caring, that this would be the greatest point of leverage to make a difference in the world. And that was before there was such a thing as the actual conscious capitalism movement, but I've watched that movement evolve and I've been part of it. And there's a lot of other people who are realizing that this is a key point of leverage. And so that's a little bit about how I got involved working with businesses and companies. Mm. Well, speaking of capitalism, you say that attention and personal energy are the new currencies. yep (laughs) well think about it I mean I think just only 10 or 11 years ago the companies with the highest market capitalization were all all oil companies Exxon and Chevron and so on and now it's Facebook and Google and and who knows what it will be tomorrow they're companies that are effectively dealing in your attention and your energy. And believe me, they're doing their best to capture it and utilize it and not let you out of it once you get in it. So I don't know that they're much more benign than the oil companies, but there's lots of, uh, lots of possibility, lots of potentiality, and a lot of pitfalls. So part of the timing for, for the new book, for The Art of Connection, is to try to help readers juggle the interpersonal human connection that really is the source of our fulfillment and happiness and well-being with the competition for our attention and the, and the fact that most people are more distracted and the full attention and presence is becoming increasingly rare and therefore that much more valuable. Yeah, so... How are you able to bring people back from that incredibly distracting digital world? (laughs) Uh, I don't know that I am. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, let's put it in a different way. How can we, those of us who, (laughs) who, who are subjected all day long to all of these distractions, constant distractions that we may think we're really interested in, but I, yeah, how do, how do we, how do we get back to what's, what's most important? Well, I mean, that's, you know, I, I, I put in the book what I've learned and what seems to be the wisest, simplest, most applicable things that we can all do that I 
aim to do myself. So one of the, I just, I just got a, a letter from somebody yesterday saying that they were reading the Art of Connection and they were applying the idea of the digital sunset that at the end of the day they would just shut everything off and be fully present with the people that they actually live with and get the other people they live with to do the same thing. And this person was writing that they're also going to take a full day off from being on devices once a week, the digital Sabbath. So digital sunset, digital Sabbath are great ways to, to free up your attention, free up your energy, and have more available to connect with the people in your lives. Mm, that's so beautiful. I just remembered that about 35, 40 years ago, I was living in a community where we had Objective Silence Friday, where we did not say anything unless there was an actual physical emergency. What a wonderful thing to do. I mean, that's one of the other recommendations I have in the book, not, not necessarily on a Friday, but <laughs> to, to take opportunities for conscious silence and just integrate them into, into your day. Mm-hmm. Whether it's, it's just a few minutes here or a full hour or even a half day or maybe the luxury of a full day, I live near a park, and whenever I'm home and, and the weather permits, I just go for a walk. I shut off the device, and I don't talk. <laughs> what a relief. Oh, my God, for an hour. And it's – so, yeah, this is, this is, these are simple you – practice. Know, this is very simple, but they're profound and potentially life-changing and will – Strengthen your chi, your life force, not to mention the incubatory phase of whatever it is you're aiming to create, not to mention your immune system strengthening. My friend, Dr. Eva Sella, wrote a wonderful book called Your Brain on Nature, documenting all of the marvelous positive effects that being in nature has on our, not just the brain, but the whole brain and body phenomenon. And if you add silence into that, just effectively make it a, a mindfulness meditation, you are just multiplying the benefits. Mm-hmm. And... On the flip side of that, communication between human beings is is very tricky, and <laughs> and it's so we tend to assume that people understand what we're talking about, what what we mean to be saying, and what our intentions are, and vice versa. And you you talk about this grand illusion that mm-hmm. this <laughs> yes, it's a classic notion that the biggest. Elu- uh, the biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's a, but just this is this is the first principle in the book of embracing humility, 
And one of my personal mottos is, if you're not humble, it means you haven't been paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I haven't heard that one, but I just love that. I'm going to use that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so people misunderstand each other all the time. Mm-hmm. And not just, you know, across political divides or other apparent, obvious external differences or interest group differences, but just people who profess to love each other and share the same interests and same values still misunderstand each other on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so let's, start, let's start with the, the people that we say we love, that we think we share values with. Let's, let's see if we can upgrade our communication with those people, and then maybe we have a hope of getting along better with people who, where we have more egregious differences. So how do we do that? You use the term humility. How does humility play into this, this aspect of communication and connection? Well, humility is just the beginning. But the reason it's the beginning is that humility generates curiosity. Mm-hmm. If, you're not, if you're not humble, if you're arrogant, you're not curious, you think you know it all, you're probably not going to learn and you're not going to want to understand somebody else and you're going to assume you've got it right. You're going to insist on it and we can't help you. And you probably wouldn't be listening to this and you probably won't read the book. So, (laughs) (laughs) although I have to tell you what I'm counting on for for the real big sales for this book, I project are going to come from people giving this book as a present to the person who they wish was a better listener who they think should be more humble. <laughs> so, so oh, I don't need this, but boy, my boss needs it, or my brother needs it, or... <laughs> <laughs> I'm so guilty of doing things like that myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, so humility is the beginning, and then we progress from... If you don't have that, everything else is only theoretical anyway. So if you have that quality, and, and it's predicated on, well, if you're paying attention, you'll notice that there's frequent misunderstanding, that it's, it's actually a lot easier to misunderstand than to know just what someone is aiming to communicate in all sorts of situations. And there's some exercises in the book and exercises I do in the workshops that bring people attention to how easy it is to to misunderstand. So once you once you have that sense, then you're curious, then you're more open. And the wonderful thing about that is that when you're curious and open, people tend to be more open to you. Mm-hmm. And and you create the bridge that opens up the possibility of trust and better understanding. And that's, I mean, I find this a wonderful process. I love working through misunderstanding to get to understand through to find empathy. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've just always been fascinated by that process. And, and my mother was a psychotherapist, really gifted. So I, I could see, I learned how to talk like that and think like that. And my mom was, you know, she was good. She could get through to people who were really suffering from a whole range of major communication disorders. But 
I saw that you know, one thing she was always able to do was see their fundamental humanity and always, always, always treat them with respect and dignity, no matter what they were going through or how they acted. So what if we could be that way with people who we just really disagree with, who we really don't like what they're doing? We find their points of view to be horrifying. But the, the, more than ever now, it's wherever people are on the political spectrum, on any issue, there's a tendency to vilify and demonize and dehumanize the other side. And that never brings us closer to empathy or creative understanding or a solution. It just sets the stage for exacerbating conflict and making the situation worse. I'm speaking with Michael Gelb. He's the author of numerous books, including How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, Creativity on Demand, and this wonderful new book, The Art of Connection. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. More than ever now, wherever people are on the political spectrum, on any issue, there's a tendency to vilify and demonize and dehumanize the other side. And that never brings us closer to empathy or creative understanding or a solution. It just sets the stage for exacerbating conflict and making the situation worse. I'm so glad that you just articulated that so beautifully. Thanks. I try to say those things, too, and, and most people are so stuck on their, their ideological positions, even, even people who, who are very progressive and, and have those kind of basic values. No, 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 I mean, I don't see any particular group as defined by their political position on any issue as being more thoughtful or rational when it comes to this aspect. I, you know, this, is, this is just something that I think wants to be upgraded across the spectrum on, on every issue. It's just a different skill set to, <laughs> to have. I mean, I have to say, I want to give uh, credit to Marshall Rosenberg and the the work of the Center for Nonviolent Communication because I feel that they have pioneered an approach to bridging differences that is a systematic way to keep the dialogue on a human-to-human level and to find ways to navigate through even extreme differences by looking for the fundamental needs underlying the positions. When we're in a world of positions, 
there's not going to be progress and there's not going to be communication and there probably won't be connection. If we're into a world of exploring the underlying needs, we have some hope. That's not a guarantee, but then there's some hope that once we, if we can identify the needs and frame them without judging them prematurely, then we have at least a possibility of thinking of something new, something creative that can address and meet those needs. So, you know, this is, I mean, and this is what, this is what a good family therapist learns, you know, how to do. This is what Marshall Rosenberg did is take the way therapists talk and create an approach so that everybody can talk that way. (laughs) Right. He was brilliant. He created a new language through which people could actually articulate their needs, not only to other people, but first to themselves, since we, mm-hmm. our culture does not teach yep. us to acknowledge what's going on inside of ourselves. And if you don't know what's going on inside yourself, you're acting out unconsciously. And that, that tends not to make things more harmonious and more creative. So, yeah, it's, it's why in chapter three of the book, each chapter of the book has a, a section called the greatest point of leverage, where I aim to recommend one particular practice to help the reader most embody the particular skill that we're exploring. And for chapter three, I playfully named it Learn Martial Arts. <laughs> name it after Marshall Rosenberg, learn martial art. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you know, his, his work, so helpful. And, you know, and I, it's not easy, though. It, it really is like learning a new language. It's like learning a new language while you're swimming against the stream. <laughs> well said, yes. Because <laughs> I, I love his work. Yeah. I love his work. Yeah. And, yeah. But after... I mean, I even met him about 35 years ago in a small setting, and mm. I still struggle to apply his, mm-hmm. his teachings. I struggle terribly, and I fail miserably. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, make sure you remember to be self-empathic, so you don't torture yourself too much for failing miserably. I'm getting uh, a little better at that. <laughs> <laughs> You know, what's so wonderful is people can just go, you can go on YouTube and get three or four hours of Marshall teaching for free. I mean, he's right there. Yes. It's amazing. So we have just so much, whatever you want to learn, this this is actually part of the message in the book, whatever you want to learn, surround yourself with people who are really good at it, who are good role models. And if you want to learn NBC, Marshall's pretty good at it. <laughs> well, communication in general, he is, he's a master yeah, of it. Yeah. Interpersonal communication, he's a master of it, whether you, whether you use the term nonviolent or not. Mm-hmm. Well, that, and this is the thing. is So then branch out from there and, and look for people who you consider to be useful role models who are skilled at reframing so that the the unnecessary animus is withdrawn and 
the needs can be surfaced and explored. I mean, I, you know, I get really inspired by, we call these people peacemakers. Mm-hmm. You know, you can listen to Mandela and Martin Luther King and Mother Teresa and Pope Francis. They're all on YouTube and they're all free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so surround yourself with these people. It's one of the simple ways, you know, if you want to learn to speak French, you do much better if you're around native speakers. If you want to learn NVC or just compassionate communication, listen to and be around either real or virtually people who are skilled at it. Yes. And in our world, that's not that easy to do because we have to deal with everybody in our lives. And it reminds well, yeah. it reminds me of there's somebody you quote about avoiding assholes. <laughs> I mean, it sounds so cheeky, but it's a very valuable life strategy. Well, this is the thing. So uh, Bob Sutton wrote this classic book called The No Asshole Rule. And it's based on a lot of research that shows that when you have somebody in a workplace, for example, who is abusive, it has a terrible effect, not just on people's morale and their well-being, but on the success of the business itself. So you just basically, in the contemporary workplace, you cannot afford to have even one person like that. It will cost you. So another researcher, Christine Porat, sums it up by saying incivility is expensive. And if you ask Sutton, you know, why did he use a word? Because it doesn't sound like nonviolent communication to say no assholes. That sounds pretty tough. But Sutton, who was a professor of engineering at Stanford, Sutton says he chose the word on purpose because he wanted to emphasize and get people's full attention. And I think his, his definition of an asshole is somebody who effectively operates from a purely narcissistic agenda whose orientation is entirely self-aggrandizing. So, yeah, you want to avoid those people if you possibly can. (laughs) And it's not easy in this world. (laughs) So sometimes if you can't get out of a context or a situation where you are exposed to that, then you have to follow the wisdom of Confucius who says, if you're walking with two others and, and one is a someone you admire and the other is someone you disdain, he says, learn, copy the admirable qualities and do the opposite of the disdainful qualities. So, so when you can't avoid the asshole, study what they do that is objectionable and check yourself to be sure that little elements of that aren't creeping into your own behavior. Well, they also say that if you observe it in another, it's it's because you have it in yourself. A sign well, that you there's know, work Jung, to do. Jung emphasized that element that where the things we detest the most in others are reflections of some unresolved or unconscious element within ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean that somebody else out there isn't actually being an asshole. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but you may have no control over that. But you, what you do have some degree of control over is the extent to which you are either acting out 
or suppressing or coming to terms with your own less enlightened tendencies. Yes. Yes. And that, that's one of the things we can do when we realize that we are the ones who are responsible for our own lives and everything in it. Whether or not that's true in some objective sense, it's just the wisest way to act. Act as if that's true, whether to suspend the metaphysical question and just act as though that is true and things tend to work out better that way. Yeah, it's not an easy thing to do because it often seems like we're at the mercy of circumstances swirling around us that are out of our control. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's and, a hard and, thing and they, to swallow. They are, but what's not necessarily out of our control is how we interpret them and how we respond to them. And exactly. So acting as if we have a choice in our response and how we interpret events, and that's where there's some wiggle room for freedom in the midst of what seems uh, sometimes like a very challenging set of circumstances. Yeah, and that's where in another chapter you get into the three liberations, which start to break down some of <laughs> some of those, those things that we tend to react to. Yes, yes. So free yourself from the automatic tendency to view everything from the perspective of like and dislike, which is not getting any easier because everywhere you go on every website and social media platform, there's a thumbs up and a thumbs down. So <laughs> they're pandering to the reptilian part of the brain that through its survival orientation is oriented to just look at everything. Like, was it good for me or, or not? Do I like it or not? And, th and that's fine. Just it's somewhat limiting if that's the only way you view the world. So the first liberation is to be able to suspend that binary filter. And this is, you know, coming back to Marshall Rosenberg, he talks about the ability to separate observation from evaluation. Mm -hmm. And this is so powerful, simple skill in the art of connection. Because if you have an issue or a problem or a challenge with somebody else, if you can train yourself, this is one of the things I think everybody can learn. If you can train yourself to express the challenge or the difficulty in observational terms rather than evaluative language. The odds of connecting with the other person and finding a solution go way up. Whereas as soon as you express things in the context of your own evaluation, the chances that the person's going to take it personally and, and react to it and make it worse also go way up. So free ourselves from reflexive evaluation, from like and dislike, so that the second liberation is, is being liberated from taking everything personally. Yep. But not only do we tend to take many things personally, but everyone around us tends to take everything we do and say personally. 
Yes. And, and so, here's, so here's the thing is I strive to free myself from taking things personally, even though I confess my constitution or my wiring is such that my first instinct is to take everything really personally. <laughs> that's part of why I've learned the stuff that's in this book. I mean, I, I've got a lot to work on. <laughs> but, you know, it's the, you know, the classic thing. Somebody's behaving erratic, obnoxious, even assholistic fashion. And it's so easy to, you know, to, first instinct is to, A, take it personally, judge and condemn them, and complain about them. But what if you then find out that the person has a brain tumor and that the tumor is impinging on their brain in a way that's the direct cause of this erratic behavior. You switch from contempt and judgment to compassion and acceptance and kindness instantaneously. Well, basically, everybody has a brain tumor. (laughs) (laughs) You know, everybody's acting the way they're acting, even if you don't like it. Even when it seems most personal, it just, it just, people just do what they do because that's how they're wired. And especially if it's a, if it is something that we would interpret, we could say is awkward or obnoxious or assholeistic. Uh, if we you decide we're going to give ourselves the luxury of evaluating and, and judging it thusly, especially when people are acting in those ways, it's, it's, pretty obviously some reflection of some unmet need or fundamental disturbance that that person is experienced. Now, that doesn't mean we should collude with it or that it's okay or that we shouldn't address it, but it's just freeing ourselves from thinking that it's really about us. So how do you do that? I came up with just the simplest question, which I actually use myself whenever I'm tempted to take things personally, and I just ask myself, how would I respond to this if I did not take it personally? <laughs> I love all of a sudden, Yeah, I, I right? love the work of Byron <laughs> Katie. She's brilliant in, in this area. Yes, exactly. So, again, I, and I, I cite Katie a few times in the book because she's, she's just another one of these characters. We call them enlightened when... They appear in the way they're speaking and talking and acting to be free from taking things personally. (laughs) (laughs) Because they really aren't. (laughs) Really, really, really. Mm -hmm. And then the third liberation is the freedom from whining, blaming, complaining, which kind of speaks for itself at this point. Yes. (laughs) Yes. another, Another big one that people just love to commiserate together. Misery loves company, yep. and blaming and, yep. and complaining is, is the ultimate social misery. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a cheap excuse. Instead of real bonding, it's just we, can, you know, it's just we don't know better. We don't have any greater skills for connecting with other people. So we, we whine and complain, and it's supposed to be humanized. You're like, oh, yeah, it's really rough. Oh, yeah, man, it's really stinks. But, you know, you just depress your immune system and theirs, uh, drag down your mood and your perceived sense of well-being, which is the research term for happiness. So notice it. And I, I confess I've been known to indulge in this myself. Me too. <laughs> so you, but then you catch yourself 
Mm-hmm. The great thing is to become aware in the midst of it all. And I like to exaggerate the whining and complaining and blaming, and, and that creates some sense of humor. And then, okay, now we can shift to a more resourceful, creative, solution-oriented approach. What are we going to do about it? What haven't we thought of yet? Mm-hmm. What can we do differently? And you write, encapsulating all of this, realizing that all souls are created equal and that misunderstanding is everywhere, we embrace humility. Humility inspires curiosity. So instead of assuming we understand, we seek to understand. And seeking to understand, we learn to separate observation from evaluation and learning to contemplate things as they are while not taking things personally, then we can take full responsibility for ourselves. And there's a quote by Jorge Luis Borges, which I don't have written down, but something to the effect of in taking full personal responsibility for everything in our lives is like being able to use everything that happens to us as raw material, like clay, to shape our lives. Yes, he says that this is, he's talking about how artists are in the world. So I like that because the book's called The Art of Connection. So an artist has a greater sensitivity, a greater awareness of all experience, everything it comes our way is an opportunity for us to take responsibility and utilize our experience in some creative way. I mean, what is making art? Art is a way of transmuting pain and celebrating beauty. Mm-hmm. And what better thing to do with our pain and suffering than to turn it into, like, turning manure into fertile compost. But I I did write down a couple of other quotes along these Mm -hmm. lines. Um, One, the first one from Ansang Suu Kyi, every thought, every word, and every action that adds to the positive and the wholesome is a contribution to peace. Each and every one of us is capable of making such a contribution. And then Krishnamurti said that we as individuals are totally responsible for the whole state of the world. Mm -hmm. We are each one of us responsible for every war because of the aggressiveness in our own lives, because of our nationalism, our selfishness, our gods, our prejudices, our ideals, all of which divide us. Well, these are powerful quotes from powerful brilliant people, and they both reflect one of the notions of the book that these small little interactions, starting with just the simplest passing glance or hello to the person who's checking you out at the grocery store or the clerk at the shop or at the post office, just being awake to the effect we have on one another and endeavoring to bring loving kindness and compassion 
to start with just small interactions. Start with whatever mood you're in. Be an embodiment of your, you know, most people have these values around love and around do unto others and so on and so forth, but before we're going to change the whole world or people in positions of power and authority, being impeccable in your approach to practicing kindness and connection and empathy and compassion in your everyday life it just it's you know it's what Stephen Covey calls your circle of influence. We all have a circle of concern about the people whose behavior and policies and so on we'd like to change. But while we're concerned about that, make sure you you act within your circle of influence, however small it may seem to be, with as much consciousness and kindness as you can possibly bring and. That ripples out. That's what Krishnamurti's saying. That's what Leonardo da Vinci writes about. And so many other geniuses see this interconnectedness of life and that our smallest actions are more significant than we're led to believe. Mm-hmm. Talk about conflict and how to work with that. The reason the conflict chapter comes last in the book is it's the most challenging. There's a, one of the quotes that opens that chapter is, anybody can hold the helm when the sea is calm. So all of the skills are still challenging to practice when you're in relatively harmonious situations. But all of this becomes much more challenging when there's conflict. And it all becomes that much more relevant. So just the simplest thing to emphasize here is that in our culture, we have a very dangerous confusion. And it's the confusion between a contest and a conflict. We're somehow brought up to believe that although the objective of a basketball game or a tennis match or any sport is to win, and you should play to win, and you want to be a winner if you possibly can, and you don't want to lose. So that is what a contest is all about. Do your best uh, within the rules to win the game and you keep score. The danger comes when we apply that way of thinking to conflict. If you think about winning and causing your spouse to lose or your children or your colleagues at work, obviously everyone loses. So a conflict is an opportunity to empathize with the needs of the various parties in the conflict and come up with creative solutions, what Roger Fisher and William Urey call invent options for mutual gain. That's what a conflict is. A contest is a chance to score more points and, and win the game. So making that distinction is one of the simple, really helpful things that we can all do so we shift our approach to a conflict and make sure we don't confuse it with a contest. Yep. Ultimately, we want to create connection through win-win situations with the people in our lives. Yeah, it, ha- it has and to just, work that I mean, way. Yes, it's, it's what we were talking about earlier. Is if we don't know the needs of the various stakeholders, we have no hope of addressing them. Hmm. So instead of focusing on positions, we focus on what are the underlying 
needs. And this is, the, this is again, uh, coming back to martial arts and NBC. It's just if we can lay out what's actually happening without evaluating it prematurely, if we can consider our feelings and the feelings of the other parties involved and the needs that might be generating those feelings, we then have a chance to think about what could be done to meet those needs. It's so rational and simple and logical, but it's so different from what we usually do, which is say, I'm going to hold this position and your position is wrong and I want to win and that means you have to lose. So it's just, it's a, it's a different framework for thinking about human conflict and a much more creative and healing one. And what you're talking about requires deep listening, which means pausing and stepping back and in a conflict, which might appear to be a competition, that seems to be the most counterintuitive of actions. It's hard to do. That's why, you know, there's some practices in the book for calming your nervous system and recovering quickly when you get agitated and when your fight-flight response gets activated. How can you free yourself and become balanced, become present, and able to listen in a challenging situation. You know, the first rule of conflict management is don't make it worse. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Recover your sender before you create damage that you'll regret for the rest of your life. Right. Don't press send. That's a, don't press send. UPS, <laughs> don't press send. You can write the angry email. Just don't send it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I've really enjoyed talking with you, and this is a wonderful, wonderful book, The Art of Connection. And do you have another project that you're going to be, that you oh, are sorry. with? Yeah, I'm writing a book with Professor Raj Sisodia, who is one of the founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement. We just started a book. Take us a year to write it, but the focus is going to be on the application of everything we're talking about to helping organizations take the initiative in healing a lot of the uh, societal conflict. So it's, uh, it's the next evolution of conscious capitalism. That's what we're working on. Sounds like it won't happen too soon. You mean the book or the, book or the evolution of society? Both. <laughs> Both of them. <laughs> well, we're doing our best to, to finish the book fast because the world needs it. So we're, we're, we're on it. But, <laughs> yep. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed this. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Michael Gelb. He's the author of numerous books. I mean, it's a huge, huge list, including How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, Creativity on Demand, and most recently, this wonderful new book, The Art of Connection. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. Stick 
around. Coming up next, Heidi Schlafer talking about the power of connection. And that coming up in about two minutes. Stay with us. privileged to be here. I've cried, I've laughed, I've been profoundly touched, and I feel really privileged to be alive. I'm grateful that I'm alive. In 1944, my parents were in a concentration camp in Vichy, France. My mother engineered an escape. She actually got my father out. And my parents walked through the Alps. My mother was pregnant with me. And when they got to the Swiss border, the border was closed to refugees. My mother threw herself into Switzerland Anything for her was better than going back to the hell she came from. And my father succeeded in smuggling himself a few days later. And in 1944, I was born. Decades later, I'm sitting with my mother in an old age home in Israel. And I cannot bear to see her. She's sitting in a wheelchair. She doesn't know who I am. I feel guilty. I feel sad. I'm struggling. I'm angry. This is my hero. 
Why should she be here? And I realize that I'm not visiting her. I'm with my own emotions and I make a decision. I'm going to cross the bridge to the world of my mother. I will leave the world where I am struggling and I will go and meet her and I will bring with me new eyes. And so I did, I came, I sat across from her and I crossed the bridge and I landed in her world and I looked at her and she looked at me and in Yiddish she said, you are my daughter. And I started to cry and with her hands, she gently wiped my tears. She hadn't recognized me for months. Of course, I hadn't been there emotionally. This miracle with my mother illustrates the three invisible connectors that I want to talk to you about today. It is the relational space, the space. It is the bridge between the worlds, the bridge. And it is the encounter, human essence to human essence, the encounter. These three invisible connectors, you know them. You live them, but you may never have framed them that way. And in working with couples for many, many years, I've come to see that those are the three invisible connectors. Let me start by talking to you about the space. It is the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber who said, our relationship lives in the space between us. It doesn't live in me or in you or even in the dialogue between the two of us. It lives in the space that we live together. And he said that space is sacred space. Now if we don't know about the space, if we don't know how to take responsibility for the space we live together, we will actually pollute it. The way I polluted the space with my mother, I polluted the space with my mother not because I was feeling my feelings. I polluted the space with my mother because I unconsciously put all these emotions in the middle between us unconsciously. When we don't know about the space, we pollute it quite automatically. A word, a look, a reaction, a withdrawal, a criticism, a judgment. We put it there unconsciously. And the space becomes uncomfortable. 
And when the space is uncomfortable, we react to the discomfort in the space and the space becomes more uncomfortable. And slowly but surely, discomfort after discomfort, the space becomes dangerous. And then we react to the danger in the space. And how do we react? Some of us react by exploding our energy. We talk louder, we shout, we say many words, we're in your face. Some of us react to the danger in the space by constricting, hiding, withdrawing our energy. And once those two reactions come together as a reaction to the danger in the space, the danger grows and now we are reacting together to the pollution and danger we co-created in the relational space. What should we do? How do we take responsibility for the space between us, which is sacred, as says Martin Buber. Here comes the metaphor of the bridge. We take responsibility for the space between us by crossing the bridge to the world of the other and bringing our full presence on the other side. How do we do it? First, sit down. Take a deep breath. Put your feet on the ground. Allow yourself to get to the present moment. Align yourself with here and now. Know that you're alive. Be grateful for this moment of your life right now. That already is a very important beginning for your journey across the bridge. And then you begin to consciously and deliberately walk the bridge, slipping the rubber band that pulls you back to your prejudices, your story, your identity, who you think you are, your feelings, your emotions, whatever it is in your world. All you take with you across the bridge is a little plastic bag, transparent, with a passport and a visa. The reason it needs to be transparent, you cannot bring anything of yours to the other side of the bridge. And when you've landed on the other side, what do you do? You listen. You listen with an open heart. You listen with new eyes. It is Marcel Proust, the French writer, who said, the adventure of life is not about discovering new landscape. The adventure of life is seeing the old ones with new eyes. And you bring your new eyes and your open heart and your generosity of spirit and you listen as if you're learning a new language a new mu music, a new rhythm. You listen by repeating the words. I hear you say, have I got you? And you learn, you learn about the landscape in this other world. 
And so what can happen on the other side? And what happens on the other side is the encounter. Now what is the encounter? On a biological level, the encounter is the resonance between two brains. The relational neurobiologists call this resonance the brain bridge. Two limbic systems that resonate together. The, the seat of our emotions beginning to resonate together. And relational neurobiologists have found that when there is this resonance between two brains, our central nervous system begins to calm down. Because they've also discovered that our brain is the only organ inside of us that doesn't regulate from within. It regulates on the outside through another brain. We need each other for self-regulation. We can only regulate through the other, through the eyes of the other, through that resonance. And what happens then is very interesting because 10 years ago approximately, relational neurobiologists discovered those mirror neurons that we have in our brain, our capacity for compassion, for empathy, for deep, deep understanding of the other. And during the encounter, these mirror neurons become very alive. And what happens then? New neural pathways begin to form in the brain. New neural pathways that give us the capacity to be in relationship. Because the brain has been found to have an enormous plasticity. It can change at any time during our lifetime. And so these new neural pathways that are formed in our brain give us a chance to become more relationally intelligent and more relationally mature. So that is the encounter in the biological sense. But in another domain, it is harder to define what the encounter is. It is the meeting of two full human presences, or two human essences, or the life force in each person, or the meeting of two souls. And what is that life force? What is the human essence? My father has a story about that. My father had the largest collection of Yiddish stories in the universe. And he loved to tell them. And he laughed harder than anyone when he told his stories. And this story is about Mr. Goldberg the tailor. So somebody came to get a suit from Mr. Goldberg the tailor. And he tries on the suit, and he says, Mr. Goldberg, this suit looks very strange. This sleeve doesn't fit at all. And Mr. Goldberg looks very seriously, and he says, you're right. For that sleeve, you have to hold your hand like that. Okay. Man says, you know, the other sleeve doesn't fit at all. Uh, look, look at it. Mr. Goldberg looks, he says, you know, you're completely right. 
For that sleeve, you hold your hand like that and you put this shoulder like this, okay? Well, what about the right leg? The right leg looks very strange. What about it? And Mr. Gober says, you're right, you just have to put your foot a little bit inside like that. What about this one? He says, well, that one, you put your foot like this. Well, now the suit was fine, and the man comes out of the tailor's store, and as he's walking in the street, this couple comes by, and a woman says to her husband, what an amazing tailor, a man in this condition, the suit fits him perfectly. <laughs> We are in the suit. We walk around in the suit because we've adapted to our life. And we don't even know that this is a suit, a survival suit. We know that this is us. For example, if I adapted by being withdrawn and cold and really distant, I think this is me. Inside the suit is our human essence, intact. Inside of our survival adaptation, we are our essence. And coming over the bridge allows our spirit to be nourished and this transformation to happen from the survival suit to our true human essence. It is in being with each other that our essence becomes revealed. And so it reminds me of this wonderful saying, I used to be different and now I am the same. I started with a story about my mother. I'd like to tell you one now about my grandson, Leo. I was in Istanbul with Leo and we were in bed snuggling and watching a movie and at the end of the movie, Leo looked at me and he said, Bobby, Grandma, I love you. And I said, I love you too, Leo. And he said, no, I love you. And I said, sure, sweetie, you love me and I love you. He said, no, Bobby, I love you. And then I understood. He didn't want me to deflect his love. He wanted me to step over the bridge to come to him and take in the pure essential love he was giving me. And so I did. I looked at him. I took him in. I let what he was giving me in that moment penetrate. And I said, Leo, I hear you say, you love me. And his face just shone. He was teaching me that it takes courage to be connected. I'd like to share with you my, one of my favorite quotes by the Sufi poet Rumi of the 13th century, who said, beyond right thinking, and beyond wrong thinking, there is a field. I will meet you there. 
I have a dream, I envision 90 million couples honoring the three invisible connectors, honoring the space between them, crossing the bridge to each other, and encountering each other, human essence to human essence. It is enormously important to me because our children grow in the space between us. The space between the couple is the playground of the child. And when we know how to honor that space and make it sacred, our children can blossom in sacred space. And I have a date in mind, November 11th, 2012, International Crossing the Bridge Day. It isn't just for couples, it is for human beings and it is for nations. I envision a time where nations will know that the space between them is sacred space, that there is a bridge to cross to know the culture of the other, and that we can encounter each other, human essence to human essence. Beyond right thinking and beyond wrong thinking, there is a field. I will meet you there. That was Hedy Schlafer from a TED Talk.
And that's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. As always, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week.